Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, and my name is Jeremy Walker. I'm the pastor of a church in Crawley, which is in the southeast of England, just south of London, Maidenbower Baptist Church. And this podcast is produced in conjunction with Media Gratii, who uh, do the distribution. And you can find more about us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can also sign up to a weekly newsletter where you'll get the featured sermon of the week. What we do each week, we read day by day through the published sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and then we choose a particular sermon each week that identifies at least something of his uh, the representative themes or uh, aspects or emphases of his ministry uh, so that we get a taste of what made this man such a, a blessed preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really our aim in this podcast series. We want to learn how he preached Christ so that we can preach Christ better ourselves and appreciate better, love better the Christ whom he preached. With that in mind, this week we're reading from Sermon 1004 to 1010. And our featured sermon is the first of this week's sermons. And the title is, as a quotation, Bought with a Price from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this sermon was delivered on the 6th of August, the Lord's Day morning, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London. It's preached in part as a response to the fact that a man named Thomas Cook, who had served the church for a long time as an honoured deacon, had fallen asleep in Christ. And I think the uh, the memory of a man who'd truly served well uh, has given Spurgeon the impetus for this sermon. He says, I have no doubt the intention of our departed brother in uh, preaching this text was to promote God's glory by speaking to us even after he was dead concerning our sanctification, that so we might be stirred up to a greater consecration to the Lord our Saviour. This text then is the one that Thomas Cook left for the members of the church, and Spurgeon presents it as a spiritual executor of his will. He sets it briefly in context. He says that Paul's been dealing with sins of the flesh, fornication and adultery. Makes an interesting comment here. It is at all times exceedingly difficult for the preacher either to speak or to write upon this subject. It demands the strictest care to keep the language guarded so that while we are denouncing a detestable evil, we do not ourselves promote it by a single expression that should be otherwise than chaste and pure. He points out that Paul succeeds well, for he doesn't mask the sin, but rather tears the veil from it and lets us know well what it is he's aiming at, yet there's no sentence which we would wish to alter. He says it's a model for ministerial fidelity and prudence. Perhaps worth remembering uh, if we're uh, preachers or teachers or uh, in some way counselling people, there's a real danger. Uh, Maybe Spurgeon, you might say, veers a bit towards a a Victorian prudishness on the one hand, but perhaps you've come across men who, uh, in attempting to deal with these things, have actually introduced more vile ideas into people's minds and they've chased out of them because they've been far too explicit. And uh, it's a good reminder to us, especially in public ministry, to guard our speech. 
At the same time, the apostle exposing sin does not trifle with it. He goes after it. He, he goes for the throat of sin and he finds no sharper weapon and no keener instrument of destruction than the statement that you are not your own, you're bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. The redemption wrought on Calvary by the death of Jesus must be the death of this sin and of all other sins, wherever the Spirit of God uses it as his sword of execution. Brothers and sisters, it is no slight thing to be holy. This then is uh, Paul's concern and it becomes Spurgeon's concern. And he says we're coming now to the, the text within the chapter and he says that he wants to see three things in it clearly. A blessed fact, you are, or he says it should be rendered, you were bought with a price. Then a plain consequence of double character, negative and positive. You are not your own, but your body and your spirit are God's. And out of that, a natural conclusion, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. He begins then with the blessed fact that you are bought with a price. Paul might, if his object were to prove that we are not our own, have said you did not make yourselves, but he concentrates not so much on creation as on redemption. Even the preservation of divine providence might furnish abundant arguments for holiness, but it's not government so much as it is redemption. Because the most potent plea for sanctity is not you were made, and it's not you are nourished, but you are bought. And this is the convincing proof of our duty and a means of making that duty our delight. And so he unpacks what this means. First of all, you were bought with a price, a common classical expression which signifies that the purchase was expensive. Of course, the very expression you were bought implies a price, but the words with a price are added as if to show that it was not for nothing that ye were purchased. And he points then again, and this is this is the emphasis that you find running through this, that it's this reality of having been bought by Christ that really binds us to him. And so it's proper for Spurgeon here to emphasizing the purchase by blood. His bodily pains were great. Hands and feet were nailed to the wood, the iron breaking through the tenderest nerves. But his soul pains were greater still. His heart was melted like wax. He was very heavy, his heart broken with reproach, deserted of God, and left beneath the black thunderclouds of divine wrath, his soul exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. It was pain that bought you. It was the sufferings of Christ that are the purchase price of your salvation. The ever-living died to redeem us. The only begotten bowed his head in agony and was laid in the grave that we might be saved. You are then bought with a price, a price incalculable, stupendous, infinite. And this is the plea which the apostle uses to urge upon us that we should be holiness to the Lord. That's then his foundation. And then he presses it home along these different lines. First of all, the matter of your being bought with a price is an indisputable fact to every Christian. It's, it's the reality that underpins our identity. It's the uh, the the accomplishment upon which our very salvation is based. And therefore, 
if we have been bought with a price, then holiness follows on as something necessary to all the redeemed. We've ceased to be our own property. We belong to him who bought us. If we cast off our responsibility to be holy, we're at the same time casting away the very benefit of redemption. You couldn't renounce your salvation, says Spurgeon. You couldn't cast away your hope. And so you cannot be inconsistent and say, I am redeemed and yet I will live as I please. He also reminds us that this fact is the most important one in all our history. Our connection with Calvary is the most important thing about us. Oh, I beseech you, he says, if that's so, prove it. And remember, the just and righteous proof is by your not being your own, but consecrated under God. This is what defines us, if you like. We, we can tell people, this is who we are. We're men and women bought with a price. And that should exercise the most prominent influence over our entire career. Be a man, he says, be an Englishman, but be most of all Christ's man. A citizen, a friend, a philanthropist, a patriot, all these you may be, but be most of all a saint redeemed by blood. Then he says, not only is this the most important fact in your history, it'll be the most important fact in all your future existence. This is what they sing in heaven. Redeeming love is the theme of heaven's song. This is the, again, the, the reality that dominates not only our past and our present identity, but also the, the, the future hope and glory that we anticipate. It is because we've been bought with a price that we have heaven to look forward to. All the divinely glorious events will impress themselves upon us, but not one of them will make an impression so lasting, so clear and so deep as this, that we were bought with a price. High over all the mountaintops, Calvary, that was but a little mountain human estimation, shall rise. Stars shall the events of history be, but this event shall be the sun in whose presence all others hide their diminished heads. Thou wast slain. The full chorus of heaven shall roll it forth in thundering accents of grateful zeal. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. The saints shall remember this first and foremost, and amidst the cycles of eternity, this shall have the chief place in every glorified memory. Will it not then have the chief place with you now? asks Spurgeon. It has been the fact of your life to this point. It will be the fact of your entire eternal existence. So let it saturate your soul. Let it penetrate your spirit. Let it subdue your faculties. Let it take the reins of all your powers and guide you whither it will. Let the Redeemer, he whose hands were pierced for you, sway the scepter of your spirit and rule over you this day and world without end. What he's trying to do, he says, is to refresh in our souls a sense of this fact that we are bought with a price. And so he pleads, and, and it's, it's, it's very potent reasoning. Oh, by Gethsemane, by Gabbatha, by Golgotha, by every sacred name connected with the passion of our Lord, by sponge and vinegar and nail and spear and everything that helped the pang and increased the anguish of his death, I conjure you. He said, I plead with you, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to draw and attract you, my beloved brothers, to remember that you were bought with a price and not your own. And I push you to this, he says, you either were or were not so bought. 
And if you were, it's the grand fact of your life, the greatest fact that will ever occur to you, and it ought to operate upon you, dominate your nature, govern your body, soul, and spirit. And from this day, let it be said of you, not only that you are a man, a man of good morals and respectable conduct, but this above all things, that you are a man filled with love to him who bought you, a man who lives for Christ and knows no other passion. That's then this first and potent point that Spurgeon draws out. It's the blessed fact upon which everything else needs to rest and off which everything else hangs. And that leads then to the second point. And, and really, he's already been uh, hammering this home or at least setting the stage. A plain consequence arising from that fact. You were bought with a price. And then it's clear as a negative that you're not your own. And secondly, it's clear as a positive that your body and spirit are God's. He spends most of his time on the, the negative uh, element of that, that you are not your own. He says there's no real argument needed for this, and it's so great a boon or blessing in itself that none of us could find it in our hearts to demur to it, to deny it or complain at it. How thankful you and I should be that we are not derelict today. We are not our own not left on the wild waste of chance to be tossed to and fro by fortuitous circumstances, but there's a hand upon our helm. We have on board a pilot who owns us and will surely steer us into the fair havens of rest. Self, he assures us, is a fierce dictator, a terrible oppressor, imperious lusts are cruel slave drivers. But Christ, who says we are not our own, would have us view that truth in the light in which a loving wife would view it. She too is not her own. She gave herself away on a right memorable day of which she bears the golden token on her finger. She did not weep when she surrendered herself and became her husband's, nor did they muffle the bells or bid the organ play the dead march in Saul. It was a happy day for her. She remembers it at this moment with glowing joy. She is not her own any longer. She has not regretted the giving herself away and she'd make the same surrender again to the self-same beloved owner if it were to be done. That she is her husband's does not bespeak her slavery but her happiness. See how important it is to understand true biblical masculinity and femininity in itself and in relation one to another. This beautiful marriage imagery that can then become a, a beautiful insight into the relationship of uh, the saint and his saviour. But Spurgeon says then, what's the consequence of this? If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are now God's because his, if it's true, and I hope he says it's true to many here present, then what inferences do we draw? The first is this, I have no right to injure myself in any way. My body is not my own, and I have no right to do anything with it as a Christian that would defile it. And the apostle argues mainly against sins of the flesh. The body is not for fornication. We have no right to commit uncleanness. And he'd say the same of drunkenness and gluttony, idle sleep, and even such excessive anxiety after wealth as injures health with carking care. We have no right to profane or injure the flesh and blood which are consecrated to God. He says, um, I want you to remember too that your, your spirit is God's and you should be careful of that. I'm sometimes asked, he says, to read an heretical book 
Well, if I believed my reading it would help its refutation and might be an assistance to others in keeping them out of error, I might do it as a hard matter of duty, but I shall not do it unless I see some good will come from it. I'm not going to drag my spirit through a ditch for the sake of having it washed afterwards, for it is not my own. See the point. If I belong to him, then I cannot injure my body or my soul. Furthermore, if I belong to him, I have no right to let myself lie waste. Whatever I have, whatever I've been given, I have been granted in order that I might serve him. I am not then an independent gentleman in that sense. I cannot afford to be an idle professor, a lazy so-called Christian. I have something to do, a work to do for him who loved me and gave himself for me. I have no right to waste what Jesus Christ has bought with such a price as he did. And then beyond that, we have no right to exercise any capricious government of ourselves. We're not entitled to say, I want it my way. We want it his way because we belong to him. The garden is not ours and we cannot give the devil space. Worldly ambition and covetousness and so forth might claim to walk through our soul, but we say, no, my soul is not mine. And whatever my old will might have wished, we desire to be obedient to the will of our Father who is in heaven. Then again, we have no right to serve ourselves. The man who's living entirely for himself, whose object is his own ease and comfort and honour or wealth, what knows he concerning redemption by Christ? If our aims rise no higher than our personal advantages, we are false to the fact that we are bought with a price. We are treacherous to him in whose redemption we pretend to share. He says, I'm running out of time to deal with this side of things, and I don't have time now to deal with the positive side of this blessed fact. So he just gives us a word or two concerning it. Again, really good example, if you're a preacher, of, of being able to adapt as you go, to have some sense of how much time you've got, how much time you've used, how much time you have left, how you're going to handle this material, where you put more emphasis, where having put more emphasis, perhaps under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you now need to cut your cloth Accordingly, great management of his material and his time is sensitivity to the environment in which he is. He says then positively, our body and our spirit are God's and that is certainly a very high honour to you. He says this is, a, this is a wonder, this is the price that's been paid so that you belong to the Lord God. And we should rejoice that Christ has so espoused us unto himself in righteousness before the world ever was, that Christ has redeemed us unto himself. And remember, he insists, that our Lord has paid all the price for us. There's nothing left to pay. There's no right that we have to give a portion of ourselves to Satan because we are entirely purchased. He's bought us entirely from head to foot, every power, every passion, every faculty, all our time, all our goods, all that we call our own, all that makes up ourselves in the largest sense of that term. We are altogether gods. And so we can sing, Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. If redemption is a fable, he says, then return a fabled consecration. If your purchase is a fiction, then lead the fictitious lives that some of you do lead with regard to consecration to Christ. If it be only an idea, a pretty something that we read of in books, then let our belonging unto God be a mere idea and a piece of sentiment. But a real redemption demands real holiness. 
A true price most certainly paid demands from us a practical surrendering of ourselves to the service of God. From this day forth, even forever, you are not your own, you are the Lord's. And so he comes to the natural conclusion. Remember again the sequence and see how he builds it together. You're bought with a price. That's the blessed fact. Then there's a plain consequence arising from that fact that you're not your own, but you are God's. And now there's a natural conclusion that follows on the fact and its consequence that you should glorify God in your body and in your spirit. He does just raise the question at least that the last few words might not be in the the Greek original. Certainly, therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, That's definitely there, he says, uh, that the spirit certainly, he said, that that's included by the force of the the language, but the uh, emphasis falls upon the body. And uh, he says, that's where I want to go because we're so apt to forget that truth that the body is redeemed and is the Lord's. So the Christian man's body should glorify God by its chastity, pure as the lily from every taint of uncleanness. He says a a Christian man can make every meal a sacrament and his ordinary avocations the exercise of his spiritual priesthood, his ordinary uh, business and labors. The body ought to glorify God by its industry. The best Christian is the man not afraid of hard work when it's due, who works not as an eye servant or man pleaser, but in singleness of heart sets out to glorify God. Our bodies used to work hard enough for the devil. Now they belong to God and we will make them work for him. Your legs used to carry you to the theatre. Well, don't be too lazy to come out on a Thursday night to the house of God. He means to the, the prayer meeting or the Bible study. Your eyes have been often upon iniquity. Now keep them open during the sermon. Do not drop asleep. Your ears have been sharp enough to catch the words of a lascivious song. Let them be quick to observe the word of God. Those hands which have often squandered your earnings in sinfulness, let them give freely to the cause of Christ. Your body was a willing horse when in the service of the devil. Let it not be a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. Make the tongue speak his praises, make the mouth sing of his glory, make the whole man bow in willing subservience to the will of him who bought it. So everything you are in your body, says Spurgeon, that now belongs to God. And don't super spiritualize things. Don't fall into uh, almost the Gnostic error of saying, well, look, I can do what I like with my body. That's one of the things that uh, he's having to contend against. I can do what I like with my body because the spirit, that's all that matters. No, says Spurgeon, your body belongs to God. Glorify him in it. And don't forget your spirit. Let your private meditations magnify God. Let your songs be to him when no one hears you but himself. And let your public zeal, the purity of your conversation, the earnestness of your life, your universal holiness of character, show that you glorify God with your body and with your spirit. And so to conclude, He hits with these uh, brief applications. A few things, he says, and have done. Because you are God's, you will be looked at more than others. Therefore, glorify him. Remember again what he's got in the back of his mind. These are the, the dying words of this deacon, Thomas Cook, to the congregation. So remember, you will be looked at more than others, Christian, and so glorify him. You know, it's not always the thing itself, but the ownership, he says, that causes curiosity. 
If you were to go to a cattle show and it was said that such and such an animal belongs to Her Majesty, it may be it's no better than another, but it would be of interest to you as belonging to royalty and to thousands more besides. And so it is when someone knows that such and such a man belongs to God, that's when they start looking, and often with a critical eye, sharp eyes upon you, worldly men finding faults which they wouldn't see if you hadn't said, I'm a Christian. He says, I'm glad of the lynx eyes of the worldlings. Let them watch if they will. He said, he talks about someone who is a great cavilla, a great complainer at Christian people, and after having annoyed a church a long time, was about to leave, and as a parting jest with the minister, he said, I have no doubt you'll be very glad to know that I'm going a hundred miles away. No, said the pastor, I'm sorry to lose you. How? Never did you any good. I don't know that for I'm sure that never one of my flock put half a foot through the hedge but what you began to yelp at him, and so you've been a famous sheepdog for me. So, says Spurgeon, if a man says I am God's, he's setting himself up for public observation. If you are lights in the world, and what are lights intended for but to be looked at, then you ought to live for God. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Moreover, he says, the world actually has a right to expect more from a Christian than from anybody else. How often do we think of that, that the world is entitled to expect from us a truly high standard of righteousness? A man says he's bought with a price. A man says he belongs to God. He claims more than others and he ought to render more. So when I hear men say, here is a body of Christians, he says, what, those Christians? Those cowardly people who hardly dare speak a word for Jesus? Those covetous people who give up a give a few cheese pairings to his cause? Those inconsistent people whom you would not know to be Christian professors if they didn't label themselves? What, such beings, followers of a crucified saviour? The world, says Spurgeon, sneers at such pretensions, and well it may. If we belong to Jesus Christ, then we ought to live up to that high standard which people are entitled to anticipate from us. And then, the name of Christ is compromised if the behaviour of those who profess to be his is unseemly. If we are not holy and gracious, ungodly men are sure to say, that's one of your believers in God, that's one of your Christians. Spurgeon's really dealing with something. I, I saw it the other day and it was a deep grief to me. It was a, a report of a particular crime that had been committed and the journalist who was responsible for the story seemed to be reveling in the fact that the people who'd been sucked into this world of, of moral madness and vileness were churchgoers and, and he, he just seemed to take pleasure in identifying them as Christians and the world looks at those things. The world looks at those who claim to be followers of Christ and it delights in any kind of inconsistency or ugliness. I think in part because it validates them in saying, see, it's all nonsense and we don't have to worry about it. And Spurgeon is reminding us that we are and should be held to a high standard. For if we say we are Christ's people and yet our lives are lives of manifest ungodliness, then we are doing dishonour to our Saviour. May we then so seek God, he says, 
that when we come to die, remember you've got the memory of a godly man hanging over the congregation. May we so seek God that when we come to die, we may feel that we have lived for something, that we, we've lived for something, that though our hope has rested alone in what Jesus did, yet we have not made that an excuse for doing nothing ourselves. Though we shall have no good works in which to glory, yet may we bring forth fruit that shall be for the glory of our Lord. And so with this uh, man, Mr. Cook, in mind, may our lives be such that even if we are not public speakers, yet others may remember our example and so may hear what our lives spoke while we were yet on earth. Your bodies and your spirits are God's. Oh, live to God and glorify him in the power of his spirit as long as you have any breath below, that so when the breath is gone, your very bones like those of Joseph shall be a testimony. That seems to have been the example of Thomas Cook, whose dying words proved such a a potent instrument in his pastor's hands. Let's pray that that would be our lives also. And let's not just ask that it might be. Let us do what Spurgeon says and remembering that blessed fact that we are bought with a price, understand that it means we're not our own, but that we belong entirely to God and so glorify him in our bodies and in our spirits, which are God's. Lord willing, you'll join us again then next week for our watchword, Sermon 1013. Next week, we're going to be reading uh, not just that featured sermon, but 1011 through to 1017. I do trust you'll join us on that occasion, and I hope that this, past recordings, and however long God spares us any future work will continue to be a blessing to your soul. Thank you. Take care. God bless you. And let us remember whose we are and who we are and live accordingly to the praise of the glory of our God.